Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we want to lift up to you our every concern, our every joy and thanksgiving. And we thank you for our mothers. What a provision. We thank you for the way in which you have loved us through them and the way in which you have loved us despite them. And Lord, I pray that we would each have an opportunity to be a blessing to our mothers today. Lord, we thank you for your every blessing. We want to come to you with attitudes of thanksgiving, knowing that you are working all things for our good, that everything that happens is truly blessing, and even the trials and tribulations we should rejoice for, knowing that you are producing maturity in us. And so we thank you. And in addition to thanks, we want to ask you for help. We are insufficient on our own. We do not have the strength. We do not have the means to accomplish what you have called us to. And so we ask that you would equip us by your Holy Spirit. Give us peace when it doesn't seem possible. Give us strength when we are weak. Give us joy when we are mourning, we pray. And Lord, I pray that as your body, your church, we would mourn with one another, but we would also rejoice with one another and therefore have reason for which to have compassion and empathy each day as well as reason for rejoicing and excitement and seeing what you are doing in your church. And I pray that that is something that would equip us and strengthen us as we operate here in cameras for your glory. We lift up each of those who are sick or have needs of any kind, and we ask that you would make us your hands and feet, but that we would ultimately look to you as our ultimate supply in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week and this week and next time I preach, I'm doing the reading because they are really long readings, and then I read them again while I preach. So I'm going to try to update you on where we're at in Genesis as we pick up once again in the middle of the Joseph narrative. And so I want to remind you first of the context. You know the Joseph story. If you've seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, you basically have the whole thing down pat. Uh, Joseph received dreams from God alerting the Israelite family that God would preserve and elevate the family through the rulership of Joseph, and that his 11 brothers would bow down to him. And rather than to trust the plan and purpose of God, the brothers attempted to kill the dream by selling the dreamer into slavery in Egypt. And as we know, this only served to accomplish the dream, as God worked all things according to His purpose. And so in three chapters, the narrative described the elevation of Joseph in Egypt according to the sovereign, sovereign providence of God. And then once this is accomplished, after these three chapters, Joseph is positioned to preserve the family by providing food throughout the seven-year famine, as well as a place for the family to grow and develop into a nation apart from the corrupting influence of the Canaanite tribes. And so there are three chapters outlining Joseph's elevation, and then they are followed by three chapters regarding the elevation and transformation of Joseph's brothers through testing. So in the last chapter, Joseph tested his brothers by putting them in familiar settings and situations which caused them to recall their evil treatment of Joseph and to confess amongst themselves their sin guilt. It was brought to their minds by the things that they went through, by God's severe mercies. And the brothers bow before Joseph, although they do not yet recognize him, 
but the youngest, Benjamin, was left at home. And so the first of Joseph's two dreams will not be fully realized until all 11 brothers come to Egypt. We saw that wise Joseph fully entrusted himself to the promised dream and sought to bring Benjamin to Egypt with his brothers. But this puts Joseph into this long-distance conflict with his father, Jacob, who refuses to, send, uh, refuses to send Benjamin at both the beginning and ending of that chapter, giving that tension. And so in our passage this morning, chapter 43 of Genesis, there's a second trip to Egypt to buy food, and Joseph continues to test his brothers, this time to evaluate the transformation of their response to favoritism. This favoritism has been a major problem in Jacob's family all the way through. Uh, he was his mother's favorite. His brother was his father's favorite. That caused all sorts of conflict. And then he's done the same sort of favoritism in his family, as we'll see. And so just as the previous chapter begins and ends with Jacob's refusal to send Benjamin to Egypt, this chapter is also bracketed on either side, giving it kind of this little structure, this function within the greater story, bracketed on either end by the favoritism shown to Benjamin. First at the beginning by their father Jacob, and then at the end by Joseph, who rules in Egypt. So if you'll open your Bibles or look up at the screen to Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, the father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so we see Jacob, the elderly ruler of the family, the tribal patriarch. And in situations like these, he's referred to by his official name as head of the clan. He is Israel, the name God gave him. But Israel is very old, and up until now, no new leader has emerged among the next generation. Uh, the oldest, Reuben, has continually tried but failed to be a leader amongst the Israelites. And so uh, because of... Jacob's grief over the loss of Joseph, he's filled with the fear of the future grief, that he will lose Joseph's only full brother and his youngest son, Benjamin. And so he holds tightly to him. Joseph has already warned the other brothers that they may not return to purchase food in Egypt unless this brother is with them as well. And so Judah steps in. He's the oldest son still in good standing with his father. Uh, he has three older brothers who have all been uh, rejected, and he will now begin to lead in the family. He, he doesn't usurp Israel's authority, but he speaks up now and is forthright and firm, and he insists that Jacob face the reality that there is no other alternative. You are going to have to send Benjamin. And it continues in verse 6. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. 
and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Jacob, despite the inevitable, is delaying just a little bit further by asking these questions. Benjamin had to go, or he would die of starvation along with the rest of the family, including their children. And so Jacob has delayed this decision, we see, until the last possible moment, despite the fact that Joseph has already kept his son Simeon incarcerated until the brothers would return. The grain that they had brought from Egypt, we know, has already run out. And so now, at this very last moment, this last possible way to save the family, he finally knows he has to send Benjamin or lose him anyway. And in contrast with Reuben, who at the end of the last chapter, uh, verse 37, offered the lives of his two sons as surety for the life of Benjamin, Judah offers himself as a pledge for Benjamin's safety. It is his own life he puts on the line. And so he outshines Reuben once again. And this is the second time that Judah implicitly saves a brother, and it won't be the last. He kept the brothers from killing Joseph outright in chapter 37, verse 27, and now he rescues Simeon through this intervention with Jacob. God's testing the struggles, the things they've gone through. You remember the whole mess of chapter 38 where uh, Judah is both brought to great shame and disciplined and saved by the work of Tamar. God's testing uh, through Joseph now as well brings out the best in Judah. This is exactly what it was intended to do all along. If you were with us through Genesis, you will remember that early on Judah is depicted as a wicked man thoroughly controlled by his sinful appetites. And he's the very first of the Israelite clan to abandon the family to go and intermarry with the Canaanites. And rather than writing him off as well, we'll see that God chooses Judah. Here we see a changed man. The severe mercies of God through famine, the discipline and rescue of Tamar, and the testing of Joseph transforms Judah completely, and he emerges as the new leader among the brothers. Later, he will rescue Benjamin, offering himself in the place of him as a slave, the one who sold a brother, into a, sold a brother as a slave at the beginning of the story, at the end of the story, sells himself to rescue a brother out of slavery. In verse 11, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again, again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And so through Joseph's pressure and Judah's appeal, 
Jacob finally relents. This was the, the tension of the last chapter, that Jacob was like, no, no way, not sending Benjamin. And Joseph saying, you are going to bring Benjamin here. And God has already shown Joseph that Benjamin will come. And so we know how it's going to work out, but Jacob puts, digs his heels in as best he can, and God overpowers his will. At the end of the last chapter, Jacob seemed convinced that Simeon was left behind because the brothers had sold him. They came back for the second time, less one brother and plus a bag of silver. And so Jacob is putting two and two together that these brothers can't be fully trusted. And they couldn't be at first when he did trust them. And now that he's suspicious about them, they are more trustworthy. And so because he found the money in their sacks, he was sure that that Simeon had been sold. But now, because of Judah's offer, this selfless offer and pledge that Judah makes, Jacob is willing to give the brothers the benefit of the doubt once again. So he says, verse 12, perhaps it was an oversight. Maybe they just forgot to take your money. Maybe you didn't sell your brother after all. And if so, if it was just an oversight, then they should return the money that had accidentally ended up in their bags at the last purchase and take additional money to purchase more grain along with gifts benefiting a, or sorry, befitting a ruler in order to obtain his favor. In verse 14, Jacob prays to El Shaddai, God Almighty. Entrusting the future of the family to the only one who is fully able to protect his family and preserve the blessing of God. The main theme of the chapter is introduced here as well. Jacob's sympathies and concern are shown to be far more with Benjamin than with Simeon, who is already, remember, suffering in an Egyptian prison when he prays, for verse 14, for Benjamin and your other brother. It's like that other guy, what's his name? <laughs> his, his second-born son. Uh, this favoritism for Benjamin, uh, together with the way Joseph is going to favor him at the end of the chapter, forms the main theme of our text this morning. Earlier, at the end of the last chapter, Jacob's favoritism was expressed in the most terrible statement, uh, 42 verse 38 when he tells his ten remaining sons that with Joseph gone, Benjamin is now the only son he has left. So he speaks this to his ten remaining sons. At the end of the scene with Jacob, here he seems resigned to whatever fate God has in store for him. And he doesn't look particularly optimistic. If I am bereaved, well, then I am bereaved. But he is finally forced to risk Benjamin for the sake of the family. God, through Joseph, has overwhelmed his will. Though weak, Israel retains faith. After doing what little he can to preserve the safety of his sons, remember he's quite strategic throughout other stories. Jacob is like, let's give this guy these gifts. You know, we're, he's, this has been his practice before, to get favor. We're going to give lots of uh, generous gifts. So he does what little he can, and then he prays to God for mercy, and then he resigns himself to accept the worst possible scenario. God Almighty will have to determine the destiny of Benjamin, the family, and that other guy. 
In the various products the brothers carry, it's also interesting, they once again, this is the second time in the story that they become like the slavers to which they sold Joseph. They now have most of the products that the slavers were described as selling. They have all these products that the slavers had, and they are traveling to Egypt once again with another one of Rachel's sons in tow. Verse 16, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys." So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, "'O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks.' He replied, "'Peace to you. Do not be afraid.' Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the man into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Now, this is actually an amazing statement Everything that the steward does here is explicitly in obedience to the command of Joseph. And he brings the brothers to Joseph's house for a feast. uh, And the brothers can only imagine the worst of intentions. He wants to assault us, verse 18, and make us slaves, they say, which is precisely what they once did to Joseph. And in hopes of averting their perceived fate, the brothers approach Joseph's steward and want to speak to him before they enter the house. Before they get trapped in there, they want to kind of clear the air and make things okay, and they explain the situation. And this is the the incredible statement he says in verse 23. He says, peace to you, do not be afraid. Three times in the house of Joseph, the brothers who in chapter 37, 4, could not speak peacefully to him are greeted with a message of peace. Now, the other two times, it's hidden by the English translation. Uh, Even when he asks, how is your father? In Hebrew, it's, your father has peace. And so there's three offers of peace in Joseph's house. But the message of the steward to the brothers is one of the most important messages in this entire chapter. He says, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, this cryptic statement is exactly the opposite of their own interpretation, that God was punishing them. Chapter 42, verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? They find money in their sacks, and they immediately know God's up to something. We're being punished. What is God doing to us? And instead, the steward insists, your receipt is paid in full. God has given you treasure. You see, for the guilty... Even the blessing of God is construed as angry punishment. Whatever God's doing, when we have a guilty heart and our conscience is heavy, we, it's, what is God doing? What's He up to? But Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That is His hesed, this covenant kindness we've been talking about towards His people. The brothers may not yet even understand that they belong to God. They are wicked. How could they belong? But God's severe mercies like famine and Joseph's testing, along with His gentle discipline, such as silver found in a sack, are all transforming His people. Isn't that a, a, a conundrum? or a, a, Not even a conundrum, what's the right word? Isn't that amazing, for lack of a better word, that God is very severe in His mercies in this story and then very, very gentle in His discipline? Mercies like famine and harsh testing, harsh words from Joseph. Discipline like finding silver, extra silver in their sack. The steward is not just making up some explanation about how the money got into their bags. He is passing along the answer wise Joseph instructed him to give. That is that God has granted them treasure. And this too in itself is a perplexing term. This is not the word that has been used all along in the story for the silver money which the brothers traded Joseph, which for the brothers traded Joseph and which was found in their sacks. It typically refers to something of great value that is hidden. And so this likely communicates that in the silver of their sacks, God has granted more than coins in his blessing. With them, God is communicating the grace, mercy, and compassion of His covenant love. This isn't in my notes. In my, what I call my conversion experience, when I, God changed my life around, I cried out to God for the first time asking Him to save me, and He blessed my socks off. And it just made me weep. I couldn't understand. And it, it was the, this gentle discipline of God. In fact, so many of the the greatest blessings I've seen are like truly from God, no coincidence, not something I've been praying for and God gives. Every single time, this has been actually a a gentle and loving discipline in my life that God is showing me where I've failed to trust and where I've failed to see that He is good. And so the brothers are disciplined by money, treasure of His mercy, grace, and compassion expressed to them in this, just this little bag of money that they find in their sacks. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house with him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Here, finally, the first dream of all eleven brothers bowing down to Joseph is fulfilled precisely. And at the same time, Jacob's prayer of verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, is also fulfilled as Joseph speaks peace two more times to his former abusers according to God's mercy. For the first time, 
Now, Joseph greets his only full brother. So this is the only brother whom he would have likely shared a tent when they were young, and the only brother who did not hate him as they were growing up. And his compassion grew warm, causing his austerity to crack so that he must quickly move to a private room to weep in order to maintain his facade for the good of the brothers. Remember, they're not done being tested yet. And so he he moves off to, to maintain his Egyptian look. And this warmth that Joseph shows also reveals the passion God has for all of the brothers. His own treasure, Deuteronomy 7, 6. And so the only other place this term is used in this way is in Hosea eleven eight, 8, when God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is how God speaks of all of Israel's tribes. Here, God is speaking of His beloved people even while He is executing the most terrible punishments upon them. In verse 7, right before this one, He describes them as a people bent on turning away from Me. And if you read the chapter, it's all about how God is bringing terrible judgments upon Israel. And then he says this, he says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And so here, too, Joseph represents the love of our Heavenly Father, who retains sometimes a position of severity in order to test and discipline in His mercy, yet at times, as in Hosea 11.8, the public facade of passionlessness is penetrated, and we see Him deeply moved over His people in compassion. But God's testing of the brothers through Joseph is not yet complete, and so the compassion of Joseph is revealed to the audience now, but not yet to the brothers. So, see this? He's still in this passion that he has for them, in doing everything for them, the testing that God is doing for these brothers to bring them to good, but Joseph still maintains this severe posture for the time, for their good. And so, verse 31, he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This is how the chapter ends. There is here a major clue, not really part of the main theme this morning, but there's a major clue here as to why God is bringing Israel to sojourn in Egypt. We've already seen that the Canaanites are very willing to integrate and absorb the sons of Israel, but the Egyptians hold them in contempt. Judah's intermarriage with the Canaanites in Genesis 38 shows just how dangerous the Canaanites were to this fledgling nation. And so, in Egypt, there would be no such threat because the Egyptians would not intermarry with them. They would not even eat with the Hebrews. It would be considered an abomination. And so, this this tribe that is not yet a nation needs a safe place to grow. And you think, Egypt, that's the safe place God has for them? They get 400 years of slavery? Yes, yes. 
So God, in his severe mercy, protects them from annihilation by bringing them into a place. So he already tells Abraham this years before, that for 400 years they will be in Egypt as slaves eventually. And this is God's mercy for them, to protect them so that there will still be an Israel at the end of this time. So the meal, because it's an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews, the meal served in three different groups. Joseph alone is elevated socially above his Egyptian cohort. And then the brothers are a separate domain entirely. As outcasts in Egyptian culture, they eat at a third table. But this is the second time in our story that Joseph is separated from his brothers during a meal. But this time, he's not watching them eat from the bottom of an empty cistern. At the first meal, there was this separation. He was the victim. Here he is the victor. And in contrast, they feast and drink along with him, whereas then he had nothing even to drink in the pit. Truly, Psalm 23.5 is fulfilled for Joseph as a table is prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. And even more, in His mercy, God is making those enemies to be brothers in truth as they feast with Him. And so Joseph sits the brothers according to their birth order, which unsettles them. All they know is that someone knows a lot more about them than they were comfortable with. And also disconcerting was that Benjamin received five times the generous portion given to the other brothers. And so it's not as though Benjamin would be able to eat five times as much as his brothers at a feast, but the extra portions have a symbolic function. Benjamin was being favored, explicitly favored, once again. You think they're all lined up, and and somehow someone knows what their age order is, so you have the oldest to youngest, and then the servants come out and they give him not just one plate, but two, three, four, five portions above the other brothers. There's this obvious favoritism being shown to Benjamin at the end here. And so this banquet feast was yet another test devised for the sake of the brothers. If they retained any envy for Benjamin, Jacob's favorite son, this treatment was bound to excite it. Joseph is trying to see here if there's any hint of jealousy in them. Remember, they had hated Joseph because he was favored. And so the special treatment of Benjamin recreates the special treatment Joseph had been shown by his father and the special coat which had stimulated the jealousy of his brothers in the past. Will they respond with jealousy towards Benjamin just as they had towards him? But the transformation of the brothers is amazing. Through the discipline they have suffered, the awareness of their sin guilt regarding their treatment of Joseph, this test reveals the quality of their character has changed. They are not hateful. They're not angered. But instead, they drank and were merry with him. That is Benjamin in this story. And so Benjamin has like all this food, all this drink, five times of what everyone else has, and the brothers celebrate with him. They celebrate what he's enjoying. They celebrate the goodness. This is amazing transformation. The Hebrew reads literally, they drank and got drunk with him. This is that they they really got together and enjoyed things together and were comfortable with one another. The experience they share now allow them to celebrate with 
their brother's blessing rather than to plot against him as they had with Joseph. And thus, this section begins and ends with favoritism, as does, in fact, the entire Joseph narrative, as we'll see closer to the end, where Joseph is favored at the beginning and Judah is favored at the end. This motif of favoritism is balanced by an emphasis on God's mercy, provision, and grace for all of His people. God sovereignly elects Joseph, and Jacob sinfully favors Benjamin. Both are used by God in His mercy to serve the interest of all the brothers. The entire covenant family is blessed because of these things. All of this serves to prepare the audience for the elevation of Judah later in Genesis 49.8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. We've heard a prophecy like this before, right? Right at the beginning of the story, this prepares the audience to understand that now as the whole tribes of Israel are commanded to bow to Judah, the, the kingly tribe from which would come King David and King Jesus. The audience is prepared that this is, this is okay. This is for our good. What favors one eventually serves to bless us all. In each case, the entire covenant community experiences whatever blessing is granted to an individual. Jealousy or covetousness, as it's called, is a sin. It is found on every New Testament sin list, right alongside murder and adultery. So we might be proud that we're not murderers or not adulterers, but are we jealous? Do we live in covetousness in our lives? Are we always looking to see what others are enjoying and we are not? But the focus in this chapter is not just to rebuke the sin. There's not a whole lot said about jealousy, just a lot about favoritism. So it's not primarily to rebuke the sin of jealousy and covetousness, but to show the way in which God's sovereign providence overcomes jealousy in the life of His people. So we don't even get a harsh rebuke against jealous actions. We just get the truth of the gospel that defeats jealousy in our lives. We don't have to be slapped on the wrist. We don't have to be rebuked and say, hey, don't be jealous, don't be jealous, don't be jealous. We need to understand the good news of what God has granted His people, which will defeat the power of covetousness and greed and jealousy in our lives. God's covenant with His people includes freedom from such sins. 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, not only to forgive us our sins, right, but to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through the things they suffer and even the crimes they commit, the sinful favoritism of their father, the seven-year famine, the way they treated Joseph, and now the testing of Joseph, these brothers have now come to rejoice with Benjamin's blessing. By God's providential grace, the brothers know that jealousy has not served them in the past and that their viability as a community will require peace among themselves. And coming forth from this crucible, the formerly callous brothers emerge a bonded family, shining with integrity and love towards one another. At peace among themselves, they are ready to become a nation, God's nation. 
So it is in the church today, the household of faith. It is essential that people not only accept the fact that God gives different gifts to different people, but that they rejoice in those gifts. Envy and malice have no place in the family of God. They have to be purged through testing. We are living stones in God's temple together, 1 Peter 2. Called together to be one family, one nation. One body even takes it further in 1 Corinthians 12. Each members of one another. And so what is good for one member is good for us all. And what is bad for one member is bad for us all. Every one of us ought to be thankful for what God has given us, both individually and communally. And we should not be concerned if someone else receives more or different. But this takes place when we realize that God is working all things out for our good. And that every blessing is ours through Christ Jesus. When God calls one or another to some area of leadership or apparent blessing, those who know their God will recognize that this too is our blessing. So what is good for you is good for me. And what is good for me is good for you. Among the whole congregation of God's church, not just here but in all places, those who belong to God, this is the family of faith in which we can celebrate one another's blessing. We don't go into it in this chapter, but there's no point in being jealous or covetous of those who do not have the blessing of God. No matter what good things they seem to enjoy, we know it will come to an end and God will stand against the proud. But within the church, jealousy is even less appropriate as we begin to understand the goodness of God. That by choosing Joseph at the beginning, this is for the sake of the family. The favoritism God allows Jacob to sinfully show Joseph and then Benjamin is for the good of the family. And then Joseph finally at the end tests the brothers, favoring Benjamin for the good of the family, which leads them to entrust themselves to Judah for the good of the family. And so when God calls us to different areas, different blessings, we need to recognize that this is our blessing. This is the only way we overcome covetousness and jealousy. It's not by shaking our fingers. It's not by tisk tisk. It is the goodness of God, which has made everything work for you and I to bring us to the greatest of blessing, what has been granted us in Christ. And this is the maturity of those people of God, whom God will use to bless the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as we meditate on it and delve into it, how just entirely life-giving it is. We thank you so much that the love that you have shown, the good news of your gospel, is so unlike all man-made religion. We're not presented with the lists of don't here, but we're presented with the goodness of God that makes the don'ts unnecessary. We thank you that you are faithful not only to save, but to complete the work that you have started in us. And so, God, I ask you this morning that you would bring us to repentance, 
for jealousy and covetousness as we look to others and think that somehow we are less than blessed, our good and loving Heavenly Father is withholding good things from us. Father, forgive us, not just for jealousy, but for the way that we have sinned against you and maligned your name because you are a good Father working all things for good for those who love you and are called to your purpose. And Lord, in our repentance, we also come in celebration, thanksgiving, because what you have freely granted to us in Christ, making us part of the covenant family, a body together, a building together made of living stones, that whatever good any of us receives, we can rejoice in. Lord, you have commanded us so many times in many ways through Scripture to rejoice, and sometimes we have so little that we feel like we can rejoice in. Lord, I pray that you would give us, grant us the joy of knowing what you are doing in our brothers and sisters in Christ is for us as well. Grant us the joy of rejoicing with each other in every time that those of the family of faith have something to rejoice in. It is ours to rejoice in as well. And I pray that we would be happy, live in joy, because of the goodness that you are continually extending to one or the other, which is for the good of us all. Do this transformation in our hearts, I pray, through the reading of your word and the application of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. For the glory of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.